The colonel considered. Kenneth had walked a little distance away so as not to appear to overhear their talk. The archdeacon was still gazing at the chalice, as if in a trance. But now he was conscious of some slight movement on his own part, towards which he was impelled. He knew the signs of that approaching direction, and awaited it serenely. By long practice, he had accustomed himself in any circumstance, in company or alone, at work or at rest, in speech or in silence, to withdraw into that place where action is created. The cause of all action there disposed itself according to that will which was its nature, and so, disposing itself, moved him easily as a part of its own accommodation to the changing wills of men, so that at any time, and at all times, its own perfection was maintained, now known in endurance, now in beauty, now in wisdom, now in joy. There was no smallest hesitation which it would not solve, nor greatest anxiety which it did not make lucid. In that light, other things took on a new aspect, and the form of Gregory, where he stood a few steps away, was as unreal as it was huge. The sentences which he had altered a few days back on denying and defying destiny boomed like unmeaning echoes across creation. Nothing but destiny could defy destiny. All else which sought to do so was pomposity so extreme as to become merely silly. It was a useless attempt at usurpation, useless and yet slightly displeasing, as pomposity always is. In the universe, as in Fardel's, pomposity was bad manners. From its bracket, the grail shuddered forward in a movement of innocent distaste. The same motion that seemed to touch it touched the archdeacon also. They came together and were familiarly one. And the archdeacon, realizing with his whole mind what had happened, turned with unexpected fleetness and ran for the hall door. Everyone else ran also. The colonel, having made up his mind, had drawn Gregory a few steps away and was telling him what he had advised. Neither of them had seen, as Kenneth did, the unexpected yet gentle movement with which the archdeacon seemed suddenly to reach up, take hold of the cup, and begin to run. But they heard the first step and rushed. Kenneth, who was nearer the door, was passed by the priest before he could move. Then he also took to his heels. The archdeacon, practiced on his feet in many fencing bouts, flew out of the door and down the drive, and Gregory and the colonel both lost breath, the first yelling for Ludding, the second shouting after the priest. Kenneth only, in as good condition, younger and with longer legs, overtook the fugitive halfway to the gates. Up to that moment, he had still been skeptical and undetermined in his mind, but he knew as he came level that right or wrong, it was impossible for him to lay a detaining hand upon his friend. As he felt the decision taken, his gaiety returned. He ran on in advance, reached the gate, and threw it open, reached the Duke's car in three strides, and opened that door also. The Duke had been writing poetry. Constable Puttenham had been asleep in the August sun, but the Duke, hesitating over a word, had been staring at the gate and saw the returning guests before the distant shouts had done more than pleasantly mingle with the constable's dreams. Drive like hell, Kenneth said to the Duke as the Archdeacon reached the car and himself jumped up by the driver's side. And welcome back. This week we're covering part three of Charles Williams' supernatural thriller, War in Heaven, in which the good guys steal the grail back from Gregory Persimmons, who desires to use it for his own dark purposes. 
They then must pray to prevent the Grail from being magically disintegrated from a long distance by Manasseh and Dimitri, two more advanced members of Gregory's shady organization. We'll also witness a friendship blossoming between all three of our protagonists, talk about how holy and unholy detachment can help make for a very <clears throat> exciting plot, throw a little shade at King Henry VIII, discuss pagan interpretations of the Grail, and speculate about how P.G. Woodhouse may have been the secret ingredient in Gregory's eventual redemption. Welcome back to The Inklings Variety Hour. I was pointing out last time that the Christian life is simply a process of having your natural self changed into a Christ self. Well, that very dramatic reading done by Chris Pipkin uh, was from The Flight of the Duke of the North Ridings. My name is Annika Smith. Welcome to Inklings Variety Hour. And I'm Megan Logston. We'll be talking about the chapter, The Flight of the Duke of North Ridings, from which that reading came. But before that, we need to just rewind a little bit um, and talk a little bit more about Chapter 7, Adrian, um, uh, which we were cut off uh, from finishing a discussion of by a thunderstorm. So in this chapter, um, the archdeacon, uh, you may remember, found uh, the grail in the bathroom of Gregory Persimmons, uh, but was not able to take it with him and faked being hurt in order to get out. And we end with a little, you know, good old fashioned satanic ritual. Um, uh, you know, which uh, Gregory is undertaking in order to bind the soul of Adrian to evil um, and to himself, um, and which Sir Giles Tumulty is watching um, as he does. Um, yeah, can we talk about like Sir Giles Tumulty having kind of a, a pilot sort of moment too? Like the true, what is, what is, what do you mean by that? Or what do you mean true? Um, but he doesn't come off as like sympathetic as Pilot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's a, uh, um, um, let's see, yeah, the, the, uh, Ar the Archdeacon is talking to Barbara Rackstraw um, and Persimmons goes up to them. Um, the Archdeacon slurred, slurred over the subject of tramps um, because he had been maybe beaten up by a tramp, but actually it was um, someone who Gregory had hired um, and proceeded casually. I've just been reading your last book, Sir Giles. Most interesting. He became indefinitely more pompous. A slight clericalism seemed to increase in him. But you know, that article on the Grail, most interesting, most interesting. And you think, um, you think true? True, Sir Giles said. True? What do you mean true? It's an historical study. You might as well ask whether a book on the casket letters was true. Um, right, so this uh, refusal of a, an academic to consider the question of whether 
what they are studying is actually true. Um, so why, why is that? Um, yeah. Why? Well, I mean, as a historian putting something forth, it seems to me the question is not, is the, the grail true and the story of the grail true, but is it, I mean, do you think it true? Does he mean, I mean, I guess there's the double entendre is the grail itself true, but there's also, is your work true? Is it, do you, do you really think it's accurate that suggestion that it's here in Fartles? Um, or maybe I'm overreading that, but, and then for the historian, uh, kind of not to care about his own truth claims. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, it, it kind of does. Um, gosh, I know there's, I, I know there's an analog to this and that hideous strength at, at least. Um, but, but maybe some other things um, as, as well, where you get this, where you get this portrait of an academic that doesn't really any longer, like the thing that they should care about, right. The, like the one thing left that maybe they could care about. Um, they don't. Right. Um, but, oh, yeah, I know what it is. It's from uh, 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 Descent into Hell, Descent into Hell with Wentworth. Um, oh, yeah. That's, yeah, that's, that's, that's probably getting Williams. ahead of ourselves. Yeah. 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 Um, the best book. <laughs> it, it is really good. I am looking for, I didn't want to, you know, yeah, I, I, um, we will I'm talk. We will talk about Wentworth at some point. Yes. He is yes. fascinating. Yes. But um, yes, that's that's the one you're thinking. Yeah, of. he didn't correct them about the buttons, and uh, that's that's what did it. Um, <laughs> I mean, I think there is a little bit of that too in that hideous strength again because it's yeah. the most Lewis. I mean, the most Williams influence of Lewis's novels. But um, he's de he's definitely got a concern about academics and you know what they're getting what they up to and. Yeah. And, and have a disinterested um, yeah. caring for their subject. Right. Yeah. 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 Uh, here's, here's the other thing that really interested me about the Adrian passage um, at, at, at the end. Um, um, you have this, you know, creepy invocation of, you know, dark forces and, and binding the soul of this child um, to, to evil. Um, but uh, but then you have this very last um, this very last paragraph um, on page ninety three of my book. Um, he took the grail and set it inverted on the floor. He took off his cassock and put on, in a fantastic culmination, the dinner jacket he had been wearing. Then he turned to Sir Giles. "Do what you will," he said. "I'm going to sleep." Um, and the the um, the "do what you will" is the um, sort of I, I think it's now the like motto of um of the satanic church um and it harm no one do what thou wilt or something like that it's written in like deliberately an anachronistic english um <laughs> somebody came up with it in the 60s um and they modeled it on alistair crowley's um yep. sort of motto who in turn had modeled, modeled it on um, the Abbey of Telemé. I'm, I'm sure I'm pronouncing that wrong because I don't speak French well, well um, in, uh, in Gargantua and Pantagruel, um, where they set up in, in, in like the, um, 
in the 16th century text where they set up this uh, um, uh, convent slash monastery where people, as long as they're good people, can go in there and do whatever they want. Um, and uh, and so Aleister Crowley's borrowing from that, and then um, Charles Williams is borrowing, I, I assume, from Aleister Crowley. Um, but then the modern sort of Church of Satan or whatever um, is is borrowing from Aleister Crowley as well. But I thought that was an interesting little um, reference to to Crowley, at least um, there. Yeah, I think too the um, just that um, the juxtaposition of of um you know, we, we've just had this spectacular satanic ritual. And then all of a sudden he's like, well, I'm just going to put my dinner jacket back on and right. uh, everything's, everything's cool. Everything's normal now. Um, and uh, so that's, it's, it's interesting, I guess. I mean, really situating the grail in a modern, well, for, for the time, modern English parish, very, um, it, it's not unusual. Uh, I don't, Williams actually isn't, this doesn't, that idea doesn't originate with Williams. Mm -hmm. um, Evelyn Underhill and Arthur Mackin both have um, novels that deal with putting the grail in modern day England. Um, but it's, uh, the way he handles it is definitely different from, from them. He's got more of that, um, he's less concerned about the grail as an object in itself. Um, and more with, again, looking beyond it to what, to what it represents, you know, and what it means. Um, but yeah, no, so I, I just, I think it's, 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 it's funny to, to have that, you know, like, Ooh, it's, you know, mm -hmm. a, a fancy ritual that seems very out of place. And then, you know, it, it because it does, cause you're in modern day England. And so that's, I think that's really cool. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm not sure. Like I'm still really puzzled about what exactly the grail is what what they're hoping to use the grail to achieve like what i mean i know some of the villains want to just destroy the grail right um yeah. which makes a little more sense manassa in particular yeah um and i i know there must be um <sighs> ideas about ways to use the grail mystically based on um you know sort of uh pagan raiders of the lost yeah. ark yeah, yeah exactly exactly well, it's, it kind of comes out of that idea i think um it's if you take away if you strip away the christian elements from the grail that basically all it's like a it's like a magic cauldron of plenty you know you mm -hmm. just get things out of it um and so i think that's kind of what williams is doing i think that's kind of the idea he's putting in there and he's He's using that idea, but at the same time saying this is not an appropriate use of the grail. Like the grail is not just a pagan, you know, magical object. There's Christian significance attached to it. Um, and if you ignore the, if you ignore all of that context, then you're missing the entire point of, of the grail itself. So, yeah. Yeah. yeah, I think the gentleness too, when we get to the the Duke of North Ridings and his response to the grail, uh, compared to uh, the archdeacon's response to the grail um, and sort of that Roman Catholic versus high Anglican uh, dichotomy, that understanding of what the grail is and how important it is and also a sense of lightness and humor that the archdeacon has in comparison to the um, 
it can feel over the top with uh, the Duke. But we'll we'll save that till till we get yeah. to it. Well, let, let's get oh. to it. Let's get to it because Fartles <laughs> is where we meet the Duke Fartles. of North Ridings. I um, love him so much. <laughs> So, oh so what, what's happening in this chapter? We've got Kenneth Mornington uh, arriving at a station seven miles away from Fartles. He's waiting on another train, uh, sitting and riding in a shed. And, and, and what happens to him? He encounters a minor poet, and it is delightful. <laughs> As a sewer for the stars, a voice in front of him said, alternatively, to know God and to glorify him forever. Um, and this is the answer to why was this bloody world created? Um, uh, yeah, I, I love that introduction of for him to encounter the Duke, of, like the very improbable Duke of North Ridings, um, who feels to me uh, very much like Lord Peter Whimsey with mm-hmm. um, slightly with less humor um, and, and more like self-seriousness. Um, but also just terribly over the top, but good at the core. Um, and then going to going through the words and the fun they have encountering each other's minds and their sort of intellectual um, simpatico-ness, I guess, uh, and, and their discussion of poetry and the, the better be modern than minor. Um, I loved that. Yeah. I also love how um, Kenneth kind of goes into like serious publisher mode when he asks him, you know, you have printed? Kenneth asks seriously, <laughs> but they were now discussing important things. <laughs> and in answer, the other jumped to his feet and stood before him. I have printed, he said. And you are the only man besides the publisher who knows about it. <laughs> it's just like things get super serious. You know, they're like, oh, oh we're talking about business now. Like, you've published? <laughs> I just, I think that's funny because they, they've just met, you know, but already there's that, you know, connection, um, which is great. Yeah. Yeah. He, he's reciting some of his poetry to, uh, to Kenneth. Um, um, how does thy single heart possess a double mode of happiness and quiet and in busyness profundities of utter peace do their own, uh, do their own vehemence release through rippling to- toils that never cease and then so on. Um, and that's where, yes, a uh, little minor, but rather beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, um, <laughs> and then, uh, and then the unnamed person so far, you know, says, you'll understand the horrible position I'm in. If I tell you my name, I'm Aubrey Duncan Peregrine, married Delisle, uh, Delisle de Strange, Duke of the North Ridings, Marquis of Craig Mullen and Plessing Earl and Viscount, uh, Count of the Holy Roman Empire, Knight of the Sword and Cape and several other ridiculous fantasies. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and then Warnick says, mm, yes, I, that must make it difficult to do anything with poetry. Difficult, <laughs> the other said with almost a shot. It makes it impossible. Um, so, um, so yeah, any... Uh, I just let it go because he says, you know, it's, it gets, kind of says, impossible. You can publish and the reviews at least won't flatter you. It isn't the reviews, the Duke said. It's just chatting with people and being the fellow who's written a book or two. Not very good books his books and being able to quote things and so on how can i ask the bishop when he thinks of my stuff or tell him what i think of his <laughs> it's just you know things you don't think about you know famous people writing poetry <laughs> that's interesting yeah 
this is balm for my soul whenever I think about, um, you know, in, in my in my own struggle to ever get published anywhere. And I think of people who got famous for something else, just mm-hmm. being able to like crap out books, you know, right. send yeah. it to bestseller, you know. Um, so maybe this is the other side of the coin. Um, you could be the Duke of North Ridings. It could right. be worse. That's right. <laughs> um, yeah so there i i um you know this this is enjoyable partly because it's it's just a um um an image of friendship right an image of of, of people who are um able to enjoy the same sort of you know the same sort of pursuit yeah it's also another way of encountering the grail like we we had that really mystical encounter with the archdeacon and then um mornington as as he's uh telling the story um he he felt it to be fantastic and ridiculous and would have given himself up to incredulity had it not been for the notion of the grail itself this, which to some would have been the extreme fantasy, was to him the easiest thing to believe. For he approached the idea of the sacred vessel, not as did Sir Giles, through antiquity and savage folklore, nor as did the archdeacon, through a sense of religious depths in which the mere temporary use of a particular vessel seemed a small thing, but through exalted poetry and the high romantic tradition in literature. This living light had shone for so long in his mind upon the idea of the grail that it was by now a familiar thing. Tennyson and Hawker and Mallory and the older writers still had made it familiar and its familiarity created for it a kind of potentiality. To deny it would be to deny his own past. I I love that because I feel like that's also... Um, the sort of C.S. Lewis, my imagination was baptized in reading uh, George MacDonald and the idea of the potentiality of stories, even when they are um, obviously myth or legend, but that they make, by their familiarity, they make miracles somehow, sometimes not um, more incredible, but actually more credible. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, and I think it, that's that's Mornington that that they're describing there, right? The um, yeah, yeah, that's, yeah. yeah, the publisher, uh, dude. Yeah, and 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 that that gets to the the way that they're able to, um, even though Mornington and the Duke are so simpatico, the way that they um, treasure the Grail is different and has to do with their personality and also their religious inclinations, um, which is. Um, which is pretty cool. Uh, Mornington, as someone who works for a publisher, views it in this vein of, you know, true myth, right? That these are, that mm-hmm. these are stories that mean something and, and that's why it's vital to have it, um, right? Where, um, where the Duke, it's much more of a, um, what, like a, a one, of the be- one of the most important relics ever, right? That, that holds a bit of, the divine in it. Um, um, and later when they, they have the, the moment where you see what the grail is calling out to each of them for the Duke, it's um, high ceremony, yes. right? It's like Kings bowing down. Yes. It's at the, the high, this Royal past yes. of, yeah. And like pr- the, the priesthood, like romanticizing that. Um, yeah, for sure. And definitely from a Roman Catholic background. Um, 
yeah, which is interesting when contrasted with the archdeacon, who is also clergy, not Roman Catholic clergy, but still clergy. But his response, how how different it is <laughs> when put up against, uh, you know, that that Roman Catholic, you know, relic relic focused, uh, you know, yeah. response. Yeah, yeah. It's it's almost as though the Duke comes from a tradition um, that saw all of its most precious relics destroyed by a crazy king. Uh, oh, oh, oh. <laughs> but, yeah. Too soon. It's too soon. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it is pretty just mind-boggling the amount of relics and the amount of holy objects king henry the eighth destroyed just yeah r ridiculous um um despite essentially being a catholic in like every other inclination anyway yeah. um uh yeah um yeah speak on the on the note of uh of um ecumenism there's an interesting uh, there, there's a fun little part where um the the duke says oh you're going to you're going to fartles i'll drive you you know no problem mornington so he, he drives him down there and mornington's like well won't you you know stay and the duke's like well no it's a little weird like hanging out with an archdeacon for you know the anglican church whatever um and, uh, and and so he goes on his way, but strongly urges Mornington to come back, you know, to North Ridings to, you know, talk about talk more poetry with him. Um, so Mornington and uh, the Archdeacon um, and good old Mr. Batesby um, have <laughs> a have a conversation um, about, you know, about the Duke and about uh, Roman Catholicism. Um, and uh, we have. Um, um, let's see. Yeah. Um, the detachment, uh, talking about the Duke's detachment on, on page 99, the detachment was perhaps due to the fact which had emerged from the few minutes conversation the three had together. The Duke of North Ridings was Roman Catholic, hence the sword and cape. So far as his obsession with poetry and his own misfortunes left him leisure to be anything. He promised to come to lunch on Monday and disappeared. I forgot Batesby, the Archdeacon said suddenly to Mornington as, as the, oh, sorry. I forgot Batesby, the Archdeacon said suddenly to Mornington <laughs> as the car drove off. <laughs> Dear me, I'm afraid the Duke and he won't like one another. Batesby's, a, Batesby's dreadfully keen on reunion. He has a scheme of his own for it, an admirable scheme, I'm certain, if only he could get other people to see it the same way. I should have thought that the same thing was officially true of the Duke, Mornington said as they entered the house. I'm like a British Seinfeld or something. Uh, Mornington said as they entered the house. But only because he's part of an institution, the Archdeacon said. And one can more easily believe that institutions are supernatural than that individuals are. And an institution... Damn. <laughs> and an institution can believe in itself and can wait, whereas an individual can't. Batesby can't afford to wait. He might die. <laughs> at lunch, <laughs> at lunch, Mornington had Mr. Batesby's scheme of reunion explained at length by its originator. It was highly complicated and, so far as Kenneth could understand, involved everyone believing that God was opposed to communism and in favor of election as the only sound method of government. The Archdeacon remarked that discovering the constitution of the Catholic Church was a much pleasanter game than tennis, to which he had been invited this afternoon. 
um, or that afternoon. So a little more jabbing of Batesby. Um, <laughs> That's all it takes to reunite uh, the Catholic Church and everybody else. Yeah, just anti-communism. Anti-communism. <laughs> That's it. This whole time. Yeah. I'm pretty that. sure I have some friends who were like, yes, yes. That is, that is their belief. <laughs> that currently. is the way. Okay. Yeah. 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 Though, wow. though I will say, like, it seems, it seems like evangelicals and Catholics did get a little closer in the last few decades, yeah. partly as a response to the Cold War. Um, so maybe, maybe there's Batesby maybe, was right. Batesby was I mean, prescient, man. <laughs> uh, he probably died though before that happened. Um, and probably getting becoming more sympathetic with another with one another is not the same thing as reunion. Reunion, uh, yeah. But, yeah. Um, all right. Anything else you all want to say about uh, Fartles before we move on to the flight? Mm-hmm. Um, just, oh, you go. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, no, just this little bit. Um, it's very short, but um, whether they are all of a sudden talking about the Black Mass. Yes. And um, the Archdeacon says, uh, the Black Mass is all nonsense, of course, the Archdeacon said. But nonsense, after all, does exist. And minds can get drunk with nonsense. <laughs> and uh, yeah, no, I underlined that. Yes. Yeah, started, that was literally that. the the thing yeah. I, the next thing to say. Yes, yes. <laughs> um, which is just yeah. Again, it's it's just brilliant um, because you know it's 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 William saying, "Hey, this this whole like yes, the Black Mass and Satan, those are all real, but they're nonsense. But you know, and it does ex- they do still exist, and and mm-hmm. minds can get drunk on can get drunk on that um, that." Uh, pursuit of you know power for power's sake um you know um the all all things that um that we as christians should not pursue um and so yeah i just i just and and it's so succinct but it just says so much in in two sentences you know (laughs) yeah 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 um yeah and i think um this is also the chapter in which you have, um, let's see. The secret game with Adrian. Uh, is it? Yeah. Uh, yes. Yeah. That where is, is that? Where game, is that? Isn't it? 109. Hidden pictures. Yes. You mustn't know what mummy, must she? Certainly not. They're my hidden pictures. So they shall be, darling, Barbara said. Please forgive me. <laughs> again, so trusting. Again, the parents in this. Are just, <laughs> if, if I had a child and he came to me and said, you know, I have hidden picture, you know, like you start getting a little suspicious and you go, what, what is that? You don't say, oh, of course they, they can stay secret. That's fine. You know? It's totally fine for you to have secrets with this creepy old man we just <laughs> met who yep. took us into his country house. Very fine. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's totally fine. No questions asked. None. <laughs> oh. Yeah, it's uh, I, I, you know, I was I was a little bit relieved when I found that the hidden pictures are just like, essentially what like hologram sort of things yeah. above yeah. the above yeah. the cup. I mean, I don't I I don't remember yeah. what they what they were of, but um, 
more in the more in the magical region of things. Then. Gregory threatens um, uh, threatens Mornington's job um, because Mornington and uh, um, oh, what's his name? Um, yeah, Mornington and our great Charles Williams crossover character. Oh, uh, Giles Tumulty. Giles Tumulty. Yes. Yeah, um, are are having a having a fight, and uh, and Gregory's like, well, you know, without quite saying it, um, you know, my son's like your your boss, and he's deeply afraid of me. Um, and, uh, mm-hmm. and Mornington's like, oh, okay. Um, so he's uh he walks back considerably more disturbed than before uh to the to the rectory after trying to you know stick his neck out and stick up for the archdeacon um and uh and then we have um morning the flight to... of the duke of the north riding yes yes i feel like we should cue some ride of the valkyries uh <laughs> music here um yeah um so uh so we have this odd you know the, the grail's already been stolen from um uh from the archdeacon and yes. now the archdeacon steals it back but williams has to get him to steal it back without caring so much that <laughs> yeah. he has it because we've already established about his character that he doesn't he's okay with other people having the grail Right. Right. Um, it's like Williams is trying to see, okay, how much of a thriller that's also not a thriller can I write? <laughs> can I write? Uh, where we're mostly talking about like metaphysical stuff right. and making fun of Batesby and, uh, and having some black magic in there. But like but it, most of the villains and most of the, and, and like the main hero don't really care about the grail, like the thing that we're trying to get. It's, it's quite a, it's quite a feat. Um, that that he manages to pull this off at all, um, mm-hmm. but yeah, what, what were you all saying? I, I don't know what I was going to say. Well, what was I going? I don't know what I was going to say. Yeah. Um. <laughs> I think maybe just the the drama seems to be around the not around the Grail as you get going, as much as the people and their choices and what's. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I just remember being shocked the first time I read and even the second time when I knew it was coming, um, what happened to some of the people in their encounters with the Grail. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's so um, passage that we, that we opened with. Um, and, 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 and what has to happen is basically, like, God has to be the one to decide to okay. give the Grail to the Archdeacon. Um, because it's not really the archdeacon's not like, oh man, if only I had that grail. Like he's he's just there, and there's this almost sort of like, uh, if I were more new agey, I'd call it energy, right? That yeah. um, that's kind well, of the, a, I mean, yeah. the, the way he just, vibrates to him. Yeah, yeah. Well, that and like just even before the the grail moving towards him, the way he describes it. it says he knew the signs of that approaching direction and awaited it serenely. So he's just, he's just waiting to find out what to do. Um, he's not actually going to make a decision until he hears something from outside of himself. Well, by long, this, oh, sorry. Oh no, I was just going to fit by long practice. He had accustomed himself in any circumstances 
in company or alone at work or at rest in speech or in silence withdraw into that place where action is created. So he ta he almost like just enters this meditative state before he even does anything. Um, and out of that is when action actually happens. So he's definitely like, like if, if the Duke had been in this position, oh, he would have just snatched it up and run out of the bathroom, you know, without a second thought. So, um, yeah, but the Archdeacon's approach definitely is very much um, uh, that status of waiting um, yes. on, on and, God. Yeah. Like at, at 113, right before that, um, when Kenneth is asking him, so, so what can we do? The, like we should get the police and he... He's like, no, um, I've decided in my own mind that I will believe that no one can possibly do more than decide what to believe um, when believing that it is, in fact, the grail. Um, and I, I think that connecting his belief to his trust in, in God and that, that rising, like once he decided, okay, this is the grail and we're waiting, um, leading up to that moment, there's this delirious delight. Mm -hmm. uh, and he, he keeps on humming again for his mercy endureth forever. Mm -hmm. um, in fact, for his, it doesn't at all matter. Mercy endureth forever. The archdeacon concluded. Um, he seemed to be rising moment by moment into a kind of delirious delight. His eyes moved from one to the other, changing from mere laughter as he looked at the Colonel into an impish and teasing mischief for persimmons and showing between a, uh, showing a feeling of real affection as they rested on Kenneth, between whom and himself there had appeared the beginnings of a definite attraction and friendship, um, and his own unreasonable gaiety opening into a wider joy. I, I, I love the, the descriptions of how people are reacting to the grail, but especially that it seems like a supernatural, like from a charismatic perspective, a filling of the Holy Spirit. And, and that holy joy of delighting in even silly and terrible people around you and in wonderful people around you and um, having a lightness that goes with that um, extreme trust and waiting. Yeah. And again, in, in that same paragraph where you were, there's music. Um, yes. As faintly again, he heard the sound of music. But now not from without, or indeed from within, but from some non-spatial, non-temporal, non-personal existence. It was music, but not yet music, or if music, then the music of movement itself, um, which uh, touches on, again, that idea of um, Will, Williams thinking of the Trinity in terms of, of a dance of, of persons. There's a, there's a lovely Greek term, uh, perichoresis, that refers to that. Um, and so if the reality of, if the ground of all reality is a dance, then, you know, it's only natural that music would flow out of that. And again, also, that kind of reminds me of, of Tolkien um, and his, his creation story, um, how the world is basically sung into existence. And so music's kind of at the foundation of everything. And so, um, yeah, it's, it's a really beautiful uh, just metaphor and image. I think and it's the the vision in is in in Paralandra when we get the vision of the great dance. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and then of course the from same. Narnia, Aslan singing right. Narnia into existence. You know, so it's it just kind of all runs throughout um, all of the major inklings. Yeah, there's the um, and and he seems to be sort of living uh, the the archdeacon 
seems to be sort of living in this place of continually hearing the unheard music, right? Yeah. And that's that's inherent in in all things, and continually being a, essentially kind of a wellspring of of joy. Um, like he is he is essentially a you know what what they would characterize as a saint, um, right? He's he is always in harmony with um with god and then with and with the joyfulness of god right which which kind of kind of um uh um what's the word i want kind of coincides with um what we talked about in the um in the lion western wardrobe podcast with with aslan's sort of uh jovial spirit right um that when um you know that all things are hastening toward a good end you can afford to be in a way careless right not not that you don't not that you don't do as good of a job as you possibly can on things but that you don't need to worry too much about securing your own happiness through the things that you do um, because that happiness is already secured and it's already recognizable in the nature of things, um, which, w- which is, you know, which is what makes the archdeacon, I think both such a good protagonist and such a bad one, um, that he's, <laughs> that he's essentially untroubled by anything. Um, uh, and he has to have the Duke and Mornington like to, yes. to sort of, uh, be in suspense about things uh, because he's just kind of like sitting back and seeing how it all, how it all goes, right. And how, it, how it all works. And whoops, whoops, I'm stealing the grail, I guess. Okay. Um, all right, God, um, you know, and it's, and it's Mornington who has to be like drive like hell, you know, um, but Mornington but, is Batman voice. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. But Did the, they ever uh, make a film version of this novel? He's going to have to be played by like Christian Bale or something. <laughs> that's right. Batman voice. That's right. The best uh, Batman. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, no, actually, I was thinking. You're thinking the Archdeacon reminds me a lot of another Williams character, um, Sybil from The Greater Trumps. Um, if either of you have read that one. I don't know if you ever know, but kind, kind of, Chris, kind of. I've, I've read <laughs> some. Dipped into it. Yeah, I've dipped into it. <laughs> Sybil is, is very much, she's probably one of my favorite Williams characters, but Sybil is very much kind of in this vein of, you know, she's just like perfectly serene, like perfectly waiting on, on direction from God, you know, just very much like not bothered by, cause uh, give a brief snapshot, snapshot. The, um, the greater Trumps involves um, the original deck of the tarot, like not like pipes, but like the original one is found and then hijinks ensue. And, um, <laughs> and, but Sybil is very much not bothered by anything that has happened. No, like there's a big storm that happens because of the, it's been, it's released by the cards and she's just not concerned. And she just calmly walks out into the storm to go find somebody who got lost in it. And, and it's fine, you know? And so I just, and it's, I, she reminds me a lot of, of this. And I, I think this is just a Williams type almost of, of, um, of, of this is how, this is how one should operate in the world, you know, to the best of their abilities is to be that kind of very serene, like not that you don't care, but that, you know, you're, you're not constantly feeling this like anxiety or worry over every little thing 
um, you know, you just kind of rest in, in the security of the sovereignty of God, essentially. And so um, I just think, I think that's, that, that character type is kind of somewhat all throughout. I think in Descent into Hell, Stan Hope is kind of like that. Um, you know, um, I'm trying to think, um, who would, who would that be in All Hallows? Is there one, is there a type in I don't in think all? there is. I don't think so. I was so. trying to think. Um, may, maybe like by the end, Lester gets, gets to that point just because of, by virtue of her growth. She doesn't start out that way. But, um, yeah, but yeah, it's just, I think that's just kind of, at least in his, in Williams's mind, his ideal of how you should kind of walk through life. Um, detached, not again, not that you just don't, you're apathetic, but that, you know, you're not constantly swayed by every little change in the wind, you know? <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's interesting that it makes, it's a great type, but it doesn't make for, I do think it right. doesn't make it for it's as, for good as likable. Yeah. 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 I'm, Which I'm again, much... like, and it, he kind of deals with that in the greater trumps with having other characters around. She is not right. the protagonist. She's just there as like an exemplar of the ideal, but you have other characters that are definitely freaking out about stuff, you know, <laughs> and, and, and making decisions based on all of that freaking out. And so, um, yeah, it's definitely, I don't think it's possible to build an entire novel around that type and have it be an interesting novel. You have to have that contrast, you know, um, or, or at least like not direct contrast, but at least people who are not quite to that level of serenity to right. kind of the, the people yeah. you can relate to like yeah right like Mornington like Mornington <laughs> yeah. yeah and the right. Duke you know yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. he he sounds like I, now um if you were really charismatic in the 1980s and the <laughs> 1990s you knew about a little church called Morning Star uh, oh. Oh, <laughs> that would uh, that would. There were a bunch of old hippies, and they would um, they would basically. I mean, basically, what they did is they'd set scripture to like you know, Grateful Dead tunes or, or whatever else. Um, uh, and so one that's of the ones they did. Does. Yeah, yeah. They they did this psalm. They did uh, His loving kindness is everlasting, and they did it as like a reggae song. <laughs> So, oh so the uh the you know you're hearing that now yeah yeah so so like they would say like little parts of the psalm that was you know after Give thanks to the lord he, our god yeah, and king for yeah. he is good and then well, his loving kindness is everlasting <laughs> and then they and then they go to the next thing you know, to, to Sihon, king of the Ammonites, and Og, the king of <laughs> So that's what I'm thinking the whole time I'm seeing him uh, basically act like he's, you know, Bob Marley or something. Um, <laughs> except, you know, high on the Holy Spirit. Of course. Um, but uh, speaking of which... Um, We've got our odd little trippy uh, second attempt on the on the Grail, um, in which um, Gregory Persimmons and this is chapter ten. Gregory Persimmons and uh, uh, his little coven of of people. We have a um, um, I forget what the Greek's name is. I don't uh, I don't think we ever learn his name. 
He's the Greek, right? He's just the Greek. I didn't think so either, but I remember seeing it this time around. No. And I think at least once we do get his name. Um, mm. But it's like a, just a very, like, it's like Demetrius or something like, like just. Oh, yeah, very, yeah. Okay, that does sound familiar. Very Greek. Um, yeah, just like Demetrius. And, uh, yeah. And, and then we've got, uh, yeah, probably Dimitri. Um, and and yes. then we've got um, Manasseh, right? Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. uh, hanging out with Gregory Persimmons, helping them. What are they helping him to do exactly um, when? Um, I, I, I guess they're kind of, they're just trying to will the grail out of existence. I, I think, um, again, with Williams, it's, it's hard to tell exactly what's <laughs> good. Because he doesn't sit down and go, all right, this is what's happening. <laughs> it's, it's just... Um, yeah, I I think they're just trying to will it out of existence um, because then the the three kind of get together and they just pray, um, or the archdeacon urges them to pray, um, and the duke, you know, says, "Against what shall we pray? Against nothing." The archdeacon said, "Pray that he who made the universe may sustain the universe, that in all things there may be delight in the justice of his will." Mm. Um, and so, so again. The two approaches are contrasted. The Duke is very much about action, and we get we have to get to do something, you know, to stop this. And the Duke is, and the I mean, the Archdeacon uh, says, no, we just we just you know, we're gonna let God handle it. We're just gonna pray that everything's okay. Um, and so yeah, they they kind of get together and and form a little um, form form a little circle, I guess. Uh, Williams calls it a tower of defense um, that offered no aggression. Uh, but resisted whatever there was to be resisted merely by its own immovable calm. Under the concentrated attention, the vessel itself seemed to shine and expand. In each of them differently, the spirit was moved and exalted, most perhaps in the Duke. He was aware of a sense of the adoration of kings. The great tradition of his house stirred within him. The memories of proscribed and martyred priests awoke, Masses said swiftly and in the midst of the fearful breathing of a small group of the faithful. All these things, not so formulated, but certainly there, drew his mind into a vivid consciousness of all the royal and sacerdotal figures of the world adoring before this consecrated shrine. Jesu rex et sacerdos, he prayed. Kenneth trembled in a more fantastic vision. This, then, was the thing from which the awful romances sprang and the symbolism of a thousand tales. He saw the chivalry of England riding on its quest, but not a historical chivalry. And though it was this they sought, it was some less material vision that they found. But this had rested in dreadful and holy hands. The Prince Emmanuel had so held it, and the apostolic chivalry had banded themselves about him. Half in dream, half in vision, he saw a grave young god communicating to a rapt companionship the mysterious symbol of unity. They took oaths beyond human consciousness. They accepted vows plighted for them at the beginning of time. Liturgical and romantic names melted into one cycle. Lancelot, Peter, Joseph, Percival, Judas, Mordred, Arthur, John Barzebedee, Galahad. And into these were caught up the names of their makers, Hawker and Tennyson, John, Mallory and the divine hero, and their readers too, he also least of these. 
He was caught in the dream of Tennyson. Together they rose on the throbbing verse. And down the long beam stole the holy grail, rose red with beatings in it. The single tidings came to him across romantic hills. He answered with the devotion of a romantic and abandoned heart. The archdeacon found no such help in the remembrances of kings or poets. He looked at the rapt faces of the young men. He looked at the vessel before him. Neither is this thou, he breathed, and answered, Yet this also is thou. He considered in this the chalice offered at every altar, and was aware again of a general movement of all things towards a narrow channel. Of all material things still discoverable in the world, the grail had been nearest to the divine and universal heart. Sky and sea and land were moving, not towards that vessel, towards all it symbolized and had held. The consecration of the mysteries was for him no miraculous change. He had never dreamed of the heavenly courts attending Christ upon the altar, but in accord with the desire of the church expressed in the ritual of the church, the sacred elements seemed to him to open upon the divine nature, on Bethlehem and Calvary and Olivet, as that itself opened upon the center of all. And through that gate, upon those tides of retirement, creation moved. Never so clearly as now had he felt that movement proceeding, but his mind, nevertheless, knew no other vision than that of a thousand dutifully celebrated mysteries in his priestly life. So, and not otherwise, all things return to God. So good. I know. <laughs> And and so like the the intrigue of this is not uh, the intrigue of the theology of that and trying to untangle or unravel it. Um, yes, like this. Okay, so it had been nearest to Jesus, had been nearest to God, um, but things are not moving towards it, but towards what it symbolizes and what yes. it had held and. Okay, he, he's not he's not transubstantiation. He's right. actually rejecting it in this passage, but there's something very real happening. Yes, and I think with, without it being what it is for the Duke, it's more mysterious um, mm -hmm. and more mystical. Yes, uh, actually, which is kind of surprising coming with an Anglican theological understanding. I I mean I think. Um, for Williams, I mean, this, this is really where, um, his deeply sacramental imagination is coming into play. Um, because for him, there's really no line between the sacred and secular. Um, they all kind of are bound up together. Um, the divine permeates even the physical worlds and, um, nowhere, nowhere is this really clearer than in the symbol of the grail itself. So it's a, it's a physical object employed by the incarnation of God to communicate himself to his disciples. Um, and so I think that's kind of what he's trying to, to get at, um, that, it's, that it's, it's, it's definitely a physical object, but it's more than a physical object. Mm -hmm. um, it's, again, it's, 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 it goes back to the archdeacon saying, you know, this is thou, neither is this thou. Um, it's, there's an element of the divine present in it, but it is not the ultimate divine thing itself. It's supposed to serve as kind of a gateway yeah. um, 
into an experience of, of God, of Christ. Um, yeah. And it's yeah. interesting too, that with that, you know, we're moving from, um, from the line of, of high romance and tradition and um, the Duke being so deeply moved. And then we, we end up with the archdeacon and for his remembrances, he's not seeing heaven. He's seeing his everyday every communion, every Eucharist he's ever celebrated and offered up as a priest. Mm -hmm. um, and the, the very mundane sort of vision, I guess, but it's actually at very holy um, and very, I think going back to what you said about how with, Louis, uh, with um, William's sacramental vision, um, that that line isn't there, uh, that it's so and not otherwise, all things return to God. Mm -hmm. um, and the, the totality, the all-encompassingness of that um, is, yeah. is really lovely. I'm really glad you picked that. Yeah, I, and I think it's, um, it, it's really his way of kind of straddling the two extremes of people who would say, oh, well, this is just a, it's just a symbol. It's a, it's a mere symbol. Mm -hmm. Um, and again, he kind of rejects that idea of, you know, transubstantiation, like this literally is the body and blood of Christ. Um, and instead he kind of finds this really sweet, sweet spot in the middle, um, where, where there is deep significance to this act, to this ritual, um, that, that we should, we should, you know, honor, um, because we participate, it's something that we've all participated in that Christ has instituted. Um, and, you know, without, without, I guess, over spiritual, like <laughs> he's trying to spiritualize, spiritualize it without over spiritualizing it to the point where it's, it becomes idolatrous. I think he's or, trying or to kind of straddle yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like right and, after that is when we have Kenneth and and the Duke arguing. Like Kenneth wants to set right. up a, a new knighthood, yeah. and the Duke <laughs> wants to get it to Rome, and yeah. and then he's like, "Oh, it's in the hands of a priest. You can't you can't take it from a lawful priest." And the Duke mm. is like, "No, it goes to the Holy See." Right. And, uh, the Archdeacon has to say, "Hey, like I'm not going to use this for schism schismatic mysteries. Like I'm right. not." I'm not yeah. going to be a part of that. Like now that we know what it, what it is, I don't like, that's mm -hmm. not what I'm about, but we are in charge of, we, we prayed and that's mm -hmm. kind of it. And we watch, like we don't need to, even the, the praying and then um, setting up the watch. Um, mm -hmm. He seems not interested in the watch, which is also interesting. The, um, uh, as the Duke is setting it up and, and trying to make sure that there's vigilance, right. That he might feel the others are lacking. Um, and then the archdeacon, the archdeacon felt that a passion for relics had its inconveniences, but he hadn't the heart to check its ardor. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I will take the middle if you like, he said, normally accepting the least pleasant. That will be three to five. Um, and yeah. I, I love even that, that generous humor in encountering the very different beliefs. It's also beautiful ecumenism. Ec yeah. 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 For yeah. sure. Yeah. Cause I mean, uh, Williams could have easily written the Archdeacon as being like, you know, no, um, this will not be going to the Roman Catholic church. Like, you know, because 
because the Roman Catholic church is wrong, you know, or something, you know, but he doesn't do that. He's, he's very much like, okay, I, I see what you want to do. And, and I understand the ardor that you, you have, and I'm not going to try to temper that ardor, but, but that's, I don't think that's the best idea, you know, for us to just kind of willy nilly pass this around, you know, between different churches, you know? Um, yeah, it's, um, yeah, I, I, I think it's really beautiful. And actually also the other reason that I picked this passage is because, um, this was, this book was written well before Narnia, but this, I, I feel like this passage in particular may have influenced, um, the depiction Lewis, of, of Lewis, um, uh, of how the Pevensey children um, reacted to hearing Aslan's name for the first time um, and how each of them, ex you know, had a different sort of experience, um, you know, uh, based upon just, just a name, which in a name is in essence a symbol. Um, so there's kind of that nice parallel. Um, mm -hmm. I, I think both of the passages really highlight that way in which God approaches us as individuals. Um, he takes into account our, or, you know, each of our personalities, our backgrounds, our proclivities. Um, and so there's definitely that, uh, you know, the importance of being, of being an individual while also recognizing that we are still a part of a larger whole. I mean, I think they, th this passage more so than the, the line in which the Wardrobe passage does, you know, does that, you know, puts us in a, in a larger whole, especially um, the archdeacon's reaction. Um, he's very much, you know, he's, he's talking about, um, you know, the center of all, like the, the world essentially turns on um, this mystery that we all participate in. And so that idea of, you know, where we are, we are individuals, but also m more than that, you know, but that God respects us as individuals by approaching each of us differently. Um, and that doesn't, different doesn't mean better or worse. It just means you know, we have different experiences based on, um, you know, who we, who we each are. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I, I think all three ways of looking at the grail are, are really, um, are really moving and, and excellent, both in terms of, you know, the tradition of one's own, house right as as a roman catholic uh, as well as the tradition of um uh stories right the the lit the rich literary tradition both in secular and sacred mm -hmm. stories right um that that mornington um sort of all sort of sees melded together um yep. in in the grail love the um, name list yeah yes yeah yeah, um, sort of, um, and, and this is, you know, again, if I can beat the medieval drum, um, this is a medieval way to, <laughs> to think, right? That, yeah. um, that, yeah, why, why shouldn't Arthur have something to do with Jesus? And right. as, you know, I mean, th yeah. that's, that's what the grail is about, right? Uh, Joseph of Arimathea brought it there, you know, according to the, you know, romances and that's, you know, that, that's actually what uh, that English uh, anthem Jerusalem is about. And did those feet in ancient times, uh, I forget how the rest of it goes, uh, but, but basically asking, like, did indeed Joseph of Arimathea, um, you know, walk on Britain's land or, or, or something like that? Maybe it's talking about Jesus, but I think it's Joseph of Arimathea. Um, 
but mm -hmm. um but but yeah like there there's um if you're going to tell a story why not um you know, don't don't be afraid to you know tell it in the real world and the real world is one in which jesus and his disciples existed um right um so so there doesn't need to be a seam between um you know the the people in the bible and um and arthur right and then these and these other legends um you know when when you're looking at the world through fiction through these stories um um, and then the archdeacon is really fascinating because it seems like Williams is almost reappropriating the pagan esoteric enthusiasm for the grail and making it Christian again. Um, because the, the, you know, the, the enthusiasm, the, the ideas about the grail are that this is some sort of like, cauldron of rebirth right and mm -hmm. and so and and so they take these grail stories and they're like well you know what really before we got this like christian veneer on our great you know european stories you know uh, to, to pass church censorship what were these stories before then you know and, it, and it's it's not like they don't have a point right it's it's not like there weren't pagan stories that preceded the christian ones um but um but but the treatment ends up being very very generic right yeah. like like very like oh yes death and rebirth uh something about uh you know the seasons and when it's good to plant and, and you know sow and reap and you know uh things like that you know springtime and fall okay yeah that's basically what the pagans were all about right um and uh you know that's why hitler was interested in looking for the grail right that's that's why uh, in fact there was a writer around the same time as williams who wrote a great deal about the real holy grail as a as a great pagan um uh relic right and that's that's the nazis sent him to look for it and he didn't um and which is the inspiration for um indiana jones and, and all of that um but um but then williams takes this sort of mystical esoteric like kind of non-christian idea it seems to me and um and takes this sort of generic aspect and makes it kind of an instrument of uh talking about the universal church in in a way and and mm. of you know the um you know, neither is this thou, he breathed and answered, yet this also is thou. He considered in this the chalice offered at every altar and was aware again of a general movement of all things toward a narrow channel, right? And that is that is kind of what the sort of uh, European pagan scholars saw in, in the grail, right? Um, and that, that and, you know, sex, obviously, because, of course. Yeah, I was, I was, um, was going to say, isn't it... Um isn't the uh it's the golden bow right that like mm -hmm. talks extensively mm -hmm. about um kind of positions the grail as a blend of pagan and christian elements but especially especially drawing out those sexual that sexual symbolism because the grail is a feminine symbol because it's right. receptive and yep. then the the lance that pierces christ's side is a masculine symbol yep. um and i think because people were like baga over that when it came out and, and um like early 1900s, I forget the exact year, but, um, but I think 
but Williams is like highly dissatisfied <laughs> with that treatment. Um, yeah, and, and could, because it just strips the grail of its Christian origins. And he's over here going, y'all are missing the point of the grail if you're not if you're not talking about it as the cup that Christ, you know, used at the Last Supper. Um, you know, hence why you have, I think, um, you know, Gregory is seeking to use the grail as this basically as a cauldron of magic. Um, and it and even though it seems to be effective, you know, for the moment, if, like eventually it's not if, like the grail itself just decides, no, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to reject what's going on. Um, ironically enough, becoming the hero in its own story, the Archdeacon actually isn't, this doesn't really do anything in the end. Um, it's the grail oh, itself. that. come on. I, I mean, he does, but like. <laughs> we, we will, we will wait for it. But we'll yes, wait for it. Does. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Also, this I, I I love that over and over. This he keeps using the term movement, mm -hmm. um, which I mean we've already talked a little about that the universe is a dance. Um, all things are in constant motion, um, and and uh, yeah, I just that and also I think there are several times the term like channel or narrow channel pops up. That that's how the archdeacon sees it in terms, and I'm I. I think gate does a couple of times. So that just kind of reminds me of um, like uh, John 10, nine, where Jesus says, I am the gate and the sheep come in and out, you know, they find pasture. Um, and so, which kind of, I think ties it. I don't know if he's, if he was con consciously thinking of that, but there's definitely an element of it when he talks about the grail being, you know, this is thou, neither is this thou. It's like the grail is Christ, but not Christ, you know, mm -hmm. there's, um, it's, it's, it's that the lines are blurred as they often are in Williams. Um, but I, I think it's very interesting. Uh, uh, things are very, things that there are, there are things at play in this that are very interesting to think about um, and that are challenging. Um, but I mean, ultimately, ultimately I think everything in, in Williams is pretty orthodox. I, you know, maybe some people would disagree with me on that, but um <laughs> You know, just, um, you know, because he's not saying that the grail is Christ. It is, but it's not, you know, maybe that's wishy-washy to some people and like a cop out. But like, I mean, I really do think there's there's serious engagement on William's part um, with trying to figure out what actually is occurring during the Eucharist, because it's clearly mm -hmm. a vital piece of what the church is. Um and so he, in his mind, it can't, it can't just be a symbol, um, but it, you know, what is it, it you know, and, and it, I really think, I really think most of his work is spent trying to meditate on what the Eucharist is. Some works more than others, like this one is clearly more directly reflective on the Eucharist, but, but the whole body of his work, I think, is just trying to figure out where that I mean, blurring the lines between sacred and secular, trying to merge the, the spiritual and physical realms. Um, because I, th I think, it, you know, in his mind, ultimately, that's what the goal, the goal of Christianity is, is to, you know, heaven comes to earth, you know, in Revelation. Um, the new Jerusalem descends from heaven. The earth gets remade. Um, he's, he's very, which is a very, you know, anti-gnostic position to take he's he's very very against that <laughs> and so um 
yeah, there's there's just so much at play in in, in Williams um, that that bears meditating upon. So, which we you know hard to do in a in a four hour podcast, but <laughs> we're we're trying. Yeah. Well, I don't want to meditate on it too much yeah. as we get to the ointment. Um, oh. <laughs> oh, the yeah. ointments. Yes. I want to, I, I love meditating on the grail. I, yes. the ointment, no. like this, this stuff is so creepy. I know. I, yeah. yeah. So yeah. many, so many great applications for ointments. Um, <laughs> and metaphorically, um, it's really, I, I'm, I'm, going to revise my thesis last time that it was like concealer um, <laughs> and go instead with uh, essential oil of some kind uh, because uh, I mean there's what can't ointment do I mean really, <laughs> truly I mean it's magic. a miracle cure or uncure if you want yes. to go that route yes. they build we destroy to, if you want to uh, you know um, yes. Go to a psychic witch's Sabbath. <laughs> you can use the ointment for that. If you want to drive Barbara Rackstraw temporarily insane, you can use the ointment for that. You that too. To, yeah, I mean, it really is marvelous. At the beginning of the chapter, it's it's Gregory, Dimitri, and Manasseh arguing about what to do about the grail yeah yeah yeah. and um manasseh and dimitri are both kind of like yeah we should just we should we need to destroy it we need to ruin one of quote their houses um uh the quote is that to destroy this is to ruin another of their houses and another step towards the hour when we shall breathe against the heavens and they shall fall the only use in anything for us is that it may be destroyed um and so there's that contrast of you know destruction and, and creation um and gregory is just in disbelief over this uh he's he is vehemently <laughs> uh opposed to destroying it he'd rather use it um for his own purposes and the other two are trying to convince him that he's he's uh, again c- kind of stuck at the, at the lowest level that you know of, of being a Satanist <laughs> that because uh, he still has desires. Yes. He still has desires. Um, you know, on, Gregory, come on. I know. Right. <laughs> Just get it together, man. <laughs> desires for things Get with the program. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. So yeah, it's, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. And actually Manassas specifically says, um, well, cause Gregory says, let me keep it a little while and do a work with it. Uh, that's the treachery, the Jew answered. Keep it for this, keep it for that, destroy it, I tell you. While you keep anything for a reason, you are not wholly ours. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, there's that, there's that uh, the, the urgency uh, to just destroy it, um, you know, so he can, he can, you know, ascend to, to, to a different level. Um, doesn't he, doesn't he need it? Um, what would there be for him in, in the destruction beyond just like we destroyed the thing mm-hmm. and now, now I have nothing like that. That was never clear to me in reading this. Yeah. Well, and it, it it's, it's honestly not, not really clear even in their own argument because then eventually the Greek just kind of acquiesces a little bit, says, 
let him that desires to possess seek to possess. And him that desires to destroy seek to destroy. Let each of you work in his own way until an end comes. And I who will help the one to possess will help the other to destroy. For possession and destruction are both evil and are one. Um, so then, you know, that's how they kind of end that argument is that yes, destruction is what we want, but also possession in a way is also evil. It's another side mm -hmm. of the coin, which again contrasts with the ideal of the archdeacon being, you know, kind of holding everything in a loose grip if he holds anything at all. Um, and so I, I guess that's kind of how they settle that argument that the Greeks like, well, you know what, you can, you know, if you want to try to use the grill, you can, it's, <laughs> it's not a big deal. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. He's, he's an interesting mirror to, um, you know, because uh, I mean, you could view Gregory as being kind of the foil for the archdeacon um, in, in one sense, because Gregory really, desires stuff right and 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 desires the souls of people and things like that and the archdeacon is much more sort of calm and in this state of continual uh love and joy and peace right um, but at the same time you can also view dimitri as the foil for uh mm. the the archdeacon because dimitri has a kind of uh, repose yeah he's got kind of a nonchalance right um and and, and just kind of but but it's the it's a, it's a nihilistic um, right. yeah. uh, repose right it's it's right. The, nothing matters man right um i don't even yeah, know why i'm it's doing the wrong this kind of, yeah. it's the wrong kind of detachment yeah. yeah yeah um which is uh which is which is really interesting the the you know a, a contrast between different because yeah. we we tend to treat detachment as essentially the same thing wherever you yeah. encounter it right yeah. uh, and yeah. and there's really different species of detachment in in this um in, in this book a, a whole bunch of different species of detachment actually like not just <laughs> not just uh, reality yeah. Yeah. yeah i mean it 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 runs the gamut right i mean yeah. even lionel to a degree um and uh oh and, as yeah, parenting for sure John and, just parenting yeah <laughs> yeah. Attached parent. yeah well that's for sure um, <laughs> no but it's grief. true i i do think it's interesting i was thinking about um Buddhism and sort of like the 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 nihilism and the well in the end it doesn't even matter um and the mirror of in the end it doesn't matter because of God's sovereignty and it's it's interesting that with the the archdeacon he still is attached to people like he's engaged and he's affectionate and he cares for them and he, he cares, like he sees their souls of greater worth than the relic, right? Yeah. Which we will get to eventually. Um, he, he's very, it's not that he, he isn't, he's untouched by, by affections and by the world. It's just that he has it all in the right ordering and he submits to God in, in his holding things loosely. Um, in, and in contrast to the not caring, I'll help whoever is the most evil. And it doesn't even matter because possessing and destroying are one sort of detachment. Yeah, I mean, hatred or the closest 
that someone can get to perfect hatred is at the root of one and it, it's just it's just a distaste for all things right and and then love is at the root of the other that he's viewing all things um with the love that god has for them but with that comes the trust that god will keep them um mm-hmm. and and that god will you know and, and that god ultimately is the um absolute good that all things image right um and and uh, uh kind of um yeah are themselves in 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 light of god um but yeah um but yeah dimitri it doesn't matter you'll understand one day there will be nothing else to to understand right so um so just this kind of but even like between dimitri and manasseh who both want to destroy the grail um manasseh wants to destroy the grail because he hates stuff. He hates all stuff and he wants to get rid of all the stuff. Uh, and Dimitri is, is much more kind of philosophical about it. Right. Which, which kind of like, I don't know um, if you all have any theories about this, but this is my running theory as to why he has a Jew and a Greek be like Gregory Persimmons uh, friends um, in, in, in this or, 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 um, uh, allies, um, the uh, the verse in First Corinthians one mm-hmm. about Jews demand signs and Greeks Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, and folly to Gentiles. Um, but to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Um, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Um, but um but yeah this uh um this seems to be getting at that ver- there are other places where Jews and Greeks are contrasted in 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 the New Testament but that seems to me to be the one that it reminds me the most of that that signs and wisdom yeah. and uh, stumbling block and foolishness yeah 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 cuz yeah. he the the you know um Manasseh, the, the the Jewish Satanist, right, wants to um, wants to destroy the signs, right, and and uh, and Dimitri has a kind of uh, um, philosophical approach to all of this, right? It's sort of it's sort of a anti wisdom or an empty wisdom of well, mm-hmm. nothing matters. Um, yeah. Uh, but, um, yeah. Sounds like a good theory to me. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. It's 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 odd. Um, and uh, I mean, if if it's not that, then it's something else. Because as we all know, nothing Williams does is ever just because I decided to throw in a Greek, you know. Right. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> And then refer to them constantly as the Jew oh, and the Jew the and the Greek. Yes. 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 Yeah. Yes. Right. That ages well. Yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, I, what, one thing I love about this chapter is a little Jeez. shout out. Shout out to PG Woodhouse. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so we've got on page, uh, mm-hmm. what, page 156, 157. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I don't know. It's, it seems like maybe Williams is doing this to make Barbara perhaps appear slightly um, 
slightly shallow. Um, I, I don't know. No, you don't think so? No, I don't think so because it ends up being good for her. Um, yeah. and, and part of the tonic when she comes out, right? Um, and, and it's part of the thing, Lionel, I think it looks like he, it makes him look bad, actually. Like, I think it, it shows that she is closer to saving in some ways. Um, and, and Gregory, of course, has a completely wrong Jeeves. I don't think I know it or him or them. Oh, you must, Barbara cried. When I get back to London, I'll send you a set. It's a book or a man in a book, Lionel interrupted. Barbara adores it. And you can hear him kind of like, mm. you know, yeah. it's for women. Uh, well, so oh. do you, Barbara said. You always snigger when you read him. That is the weakness of the flesh, Lionel said. <laughs> one shouldn't snigger over Jeeves any more than one should snivel over Othello. Perfect art is beyond these easy emotions. Um, and I, I love how wrong that is and how antithetical, I think, to... Um, to what Williams and, and all the Inklings try to do in, in moving our emotions and our imaginations to, to move our minds and get us thinking about things like the grail and the nature of the mystery of Christ crucified. Um, although, yeah. although what I will say in Lionel's defense is uh, after he says that, he says, I think Jeeves, the whole book, preferably with the illustrations, one of the final classic perfections of our time it attains absolute being. Jeeves and his employer are one and yet diverse. It is the Don Quixote of the 20th century. Uh, <laughs> and then even Gregory is like, I must certainly read it, right? So you have this uh, ringing. Yeah, but we know Gregory is a, is a fake friend. Yeah, I know, <laughs> But maybe, he, maybe that was. Tell me more one. about it while we have tea, he said sinisterly. I added the sinisterly. Yeah, um, <laughs> I got that. Yeah. Uh, he doesn't care about Jeeves. He's just thinking about Adrian and the grail. <laughs> but maybe that's maybe that's the untold story of Gregory's redemption that when he was in prison he Barbara <laughs> sent him the Jeeves books. The uh, set. Oh, it, I bet she would. Made his heart um, grow three th sizes larger. Um, <laughs> but but dear readers, if you have not or dear listeners, if you have not read um Jeeves uh, the Jeeves books, please do because they are every bit as awesome as they were in 1930 when this book was published. Um, yeah, the we will see what happens to um, people when this ointment, which has not been tested by the FDA um, or any sort of uh, similar British governing body the um, nic the nic the the is it the nic or the nic the nice the nice oh the nice yeah oh okay oh <laughs> yeah no yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. i was doing yeah. a crossover it's yeah, like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> thank yeah. you but um yeah um we, we will see what happens to people never um, sign up for clinical trials i think that's what we've all yeah. learned yeah I think so. I think so. <laughs> All right, Especially so. if others talk of an ointment. Just, just don't do it. So until next time, um, may your... Uh, go under the mercy? Yeah, sure. Let's, let's go yes. with that. Yeah. Under the, under the mercy. Under the mercy. Yeah. Um, 
Yes, and then music will play. encounter full of joy unscheduled on the Giessen plan with here an addict of Tolkien there a Charles Williams fan as much as I like Williams like I, I, lo I, I love him so much yeah. guys <laughs> just, it's so hard though to like sell Will you're just like everyone yeah. should read this and you're like but I know this is not to yeah. most people's taste like it's you know, again, it takes, you just got to go into it and be like, no, I'm determined to like this. And then yeah. you'll like it, you know? Yeah. And yeah. he's just, he's never going to have that mass appeal that Lewis and Tolkien, you know, at all do. Yeah. Um, just because he's, you know. And, and seem to think that Williams would be more popular yeah. than they were, which yeah. just really, I, th I think, okay. So I think it's because they saw the direction that the fashion of poetry was going, right? Mm -hmm. That it was that it was yeah. toward the modern, yeah, the modern and like impossible to understand. <laughs> and they were like, "Here's a guy who does that, and he kind of believes what we do, but he's he's writing like poetry that's impossible to digest." Um, you know, so he's he's got to be the next big thing because these guys like Elliot. I mean, right. Anesthetized upon a table. Anesthetized yeah. upon a table. Ridiculous. Yeah. Um, yeah, the entire like the entire like last chapter of uh Preface to Paradise Lost is mm. basically Lewis's invective against Elliot's yeah. style of writing, right? Yeah. Um like he's he's like, I know I've lost this war for making poetry great again, you know. But, <laughs> But, Dang it, Elliot! But <laughs> I've got at least I've, at least we've got Williams, you know, right. and he kind of like takes the he he doesn't reject he doesn't have the sort of rejection of tradition, right? That yeah. that Elliot does. Um, he's not he's not lean like Elliot is, but at the same time, he is bizarre like Elliot is, and and really like esoteric the way yeah. you know the way these guys are um so i i think it had more to do with personality and the fact yeah. that williams was so engaging yes like that his lectures are always so packed whenever he and whereas lewis and tolkien i mean i think lewis was entertaining but yeah Tol tolkien especially was not an entertaining lecturer <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I, th I think I think even though like Auden loved Tolkien and going to his lectures, it's like yeah, this guy mumbles and he's not it's not very engaging as a lecturer. I could just I could just imagine like Tolkien Tolkien sitting up there at the at the lecture, like kind of like you know not speaking very clearly, and there's like Auden up at the front row, just like. You know, 
eyes like, big and writing writing <laughs> notes and then, like behind on it like, like, like nobody uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh for your students to look at you the way out and looked at right <laughs> yeah 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 